Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute, who expresses concern that efforts to end the war in Ukraine could be derailed by the stated U.S. goal of weakening Russia's overall military capacity. Connecticut State Representative Matt Blumenthal who talks about legislation just passed that will make the state the first in the nation to have a comprehensive abortion safe haven law. And John Nichols, the Nation Magazine's national affairs correspondent, who talks about his new book titled Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, which demands accountability for hundreds of thousands of preventable American deaths. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. The European Union is pushing for new regulations on digital platforms that could impact tech giants like Google and Facebook. Policymakers approved the Digital Services Act, which requires more transparency from tech companies on their algorithms, how they target online advertising, and enforce special rules to ensure online content respects public health and human rights. Earlier, EU leaders passed the Digital Marketing Act to regulate online competition and prevent tech gatekeepers from abusing their power to squash smaller rivals. In the United States, lawmakers have failed to pass any new restrictions on tech companies despite years of promises to regulate Silicon Valley. Former U.S. President Barack Obama recently lamented that the U.S. had ceded its leadership on digital regulation to Europe and other nations. New urgency for tech oversight in Europe came with Russia's invasion of Ukraine when Moscow employed social media to promote its justification for the war. On Capitol Hill, the Biden administration is promoting the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, co-sponsored by Senator Amy Klobuchar and Congressman David Cicilline. The bill seeks to regulate digital platforms by prohibiting big tech companies from favoring their own products and services over its competitors. Big money from Wall Street is pouring into Pennsylvania in advance of the Democratic and Republican primary elections on May 17th for the state's open Senate seat. More than 60 executives at Goldman Sachs have given the maximum contribution allowed to support GOP candidate former Bridgewater hedge fund CEO David McCormick, who has raised the most in super PAC funds with support from wealthy financiers like Stephen Schwartzman of the Blackstone Group. McCormick is running neck-and-neck neck with Trump-endorsed TV personality Dr. Mehmet Oz, who until recently lived in the neighboring state of New Jersey. On the Democratic side, front-runner Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is running a populist campaign, championing a $15-an-hour minimum wage and ending the carried interest loophole that allows hedge fund managers to get away with near-zero tax rates. He faces centrist Congressman Connor Lamb, who is raising funds from billionaires and hedge fund executives and running ads charging that Fetterman is too far left to win. 
Lamb was one of three Democrats who voted for a Republican bill that would make permanent many provisions of the 2017 Trump tax cuts that overwhelmingly favored the wealthy. Thirty years ago, south-central Los Angeles erupted in violence after an all-white jury acquitted four police officers for the brutal beating of Rodney King, an African-American motorist. The verdict in the case led to the worst racial unrest in L.A. since the Watts riots in the mid-1960s. The National Guard and federal troops were deployed amid looting and arson. Sixty people died during the rebellion, which caused over a billion dollars in damages and left scars in South Los Angeles, which would take decades to heal. The uprising was a generational precursor to the civil unrest and outrage over the May 2020 police killing of George Floyd. Today, many of the residents of South Los Angeles, which is now largely Latino, live in a marginalized community where they face significantly lower earnings and higher housing costs than in 1990. Five years ago, the University of Southern California expanded student housing in the neighborhood. Four years ago, Bank of California Soccer Stadium was built. Last year, SoFi Football Stadium opened. But as development has brought new restaurants, retail stores, and more investment, it also means higher rents and home prices that displace people. The Christian Science Monitor reports that the LAPD has made progress from the days of warrior-style policing. More than a decade of federal oversight, lawsuits, the appointment of an inspector general, use of body cameras and public pressure have all driven these and other reforms. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine enters its third month, the United Nations warned that the civilian death toll in the war is likely thousands higher than the official number of 3,381. The UN says that an estimated 5.7 million Ukrainian war refugees have fled the country, with another 6.5 million people internally displaced. In Russian President Vladimir Putin's annual May 9th Victory Day address in Moscow, he defended his decision to invade Ukraine, while justifying the war as an extension of the struggle against Nazism in Europe. Putin also accused Ukraine of planning a punitive invasion of its Russian-controlled territory and charged that NATO was building up troops near Russia's borders. Earlier on April 25, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin declared that the U.S. hopes the war in Ukraine will result in a weakened Russia that no longer has the capacity to invade its neighbors. Washington's involvement in the conflict has apparently escalated, with reports that U.S. intelligence was shared with Ukraine's military, resulting in the sinking of Russia's Black Sea naval flagship, the shooting down of a transport plane killing hundreds of Russian troops, and missile strikes that have reportedly killed 12 Russian generals on the field of battle. Your reporter spoke with George Beebe former director of the CIA's Russia desk, who advised then-Vice President Dick Cheney, who now serves as director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Here he expresses concern that efforts to end this conflict could be derailed 
by the Biden administration's stated goal of weakening Russia's overall military capacity. The combination of outrage over Russia's invasion and the brutality uh, that the Russians have exhibited uh, in their attacks and a belief that, hey, there, perhaps the Ukrainians could actually win this has caused uh, U.S. war aims to escalate. At the beginning of the war, I think our goal was to stymie the Russian attacks to make sure that they weren't able to succeed and, and capture Ukraine or the capital city. And we've now started talking about victory, driving Russian forces out of Ukraine, perhaps altogether, including the Crimea, which the Russians uh, annexed in 2014 when this war all really started. The danger here is that Russia could find itself feeling cornered, feeling as if the choice that it faced in Ukraine is one between defeat and humiliation on the one hand or escalation against the United States and NATO. We could find ourselves as a result in a direct military conflict with Russia, uh, the world's largest nuclear power. And when you're in that kind of direct conflict, the, the dangers that the, that the uh, war could escalate, uh, perhaps to the nuclear level, uh, are not insignificant. What I think we need to be thinking about is how do we uh, find a way out of this situation that doesn't confront Putin with this choice between humiliation and defeat on the one hand or potential escalation to the nuclear level on the other hand. That is a dilemma that uh, U.S. leaders for the entire Cold War period sought to avoid. Uh, they recognized that in these crisis situations, you need to leave your opponents with a face-saving way out. That is what makes the, uh, the nuclear age different from you know, the, the centuries that preceded it. And it's something that I think we need to remind ourselves of today because we could find ourselves in a, a situation that uh, could be quite horrific if we don't. What would be your best advice to the Biden administration to de-escalate and try to bring an end to this war and the death and destruction in Ukraine that would help us avert some kind of horrible and unpredictable and dangerous catastrophe of a U.S.-Russia confrontation? Well, the United States has some significant leverage that it can employ to help guide the situation in a direction that would serve American interests. We've done a good job of helping the Ukrainians defend themselves. We've done a good job of denying Russia uh, it, an ability to achieve its, its quite expansive war objectives at the start of this invasion. But now we need to be using that leverage to incentivize uh, a way out of this, an early end to this war, so that we're not, you know, years from now, uh, still looking at destruction, Ukrainian suffering, a very unstable Europe, in a very depressed and unstable global economy, which is where this all could end. So that means using uh, economic sanctions not just to punish the Russians, but to incentivize them to compromise. And to do that, you have to give an indication that if they seek a settlement, if, if they agree to compromise, 
that we can lift those sanctions at least partially. Uh, if they see no reward, if they see only continued punishment, we're in fact incentivizing them to keep this war going. And I don't think that's in the American interest. That was George Beebe, former director of the CIA's Russia desk, who now serves as director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Find more analysis and commentary on the U.S. role in the war in Ukraine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On April 30th, reports of a leaked draft of a majority ruling signal that the U.S. Supreme Court was poised to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights for nearly 50 years. If the court's justices do overturn Roe, about half the states in the U.S. will ban or severely limit abortion. The state of Connecticut already had strong laws on the books protecting reproductive rights. But with many states, and the Supreme Court now moving to remove abortion protections, lawmakers in Connecticut took some additional steps. On April 29th, Connecticut's Democratic-controlled state Senate gave final approval to the first-in-the-nation comprehensive legislation to make the state an abortion-safe haven for patients who live in states moving to ban or restrict access to abortion. The Reproductive Freedom Defense Act, as it's known, was passed with some bipartisan support in both the General Assembly and Senate. Governor Ned Lamont signed the bill that will go into effect on July 1st this year. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spoke with Connecticut State Representative Matt Blumenthal, son of Connecticut senior U.S. Senator Dick Blumenthal. Here, Representative Blumenthal, co-chair of the new Reproductive Rights Caucus in the Connecticut General Assembly, explains what's in the new law and how Connecticut's safe haven legislation could be a model for other states supporting reproductive rights. So the law does two things. First of all, it addresses the providers that can give abortion care here in the state of Connecticut or certain abortion care here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we're already experiencing somewhat of a provider shortage and we anticipate that if Roe is overruled, which it appears it will be, that we'll see increased patients here in the state of Connecticut, which we already have from some of these states that have had these laws. Uh, so the law expands the providers eligible to provide medication and aspiration abortion beyond physicians to APRNs, nurse midwives, and certified physician's assistants. Uh, and in doing that, we're joining 15 other states around the country who've already passed similar laws. In addition to that, we passed legal protections that will essentially make Connecticut a safe haven for legal, safe abortion care. And the law does that by a couple of things. First of all, it prevents the state's investigative machinery from being used to pursue anybody who has either sought or provided or assisted someone else in obtaining abortion care that is legal here in the state of Connecticut. And it does that by barring any state agency, any local agency, any law enforcement from cooperating with any out-of-state investigation seeking to impose liability on such conduct. It also bars the courts from enforcing either civil subpoena or criminal summonses against individuals who are being pursued for providing or obtaining or assisting others in obtaining legal abortion care or other reproductive health care here in the state of Connecticut. 
it creates a private cause of action that allows anyone who is sued under one of these Texas-style bounty laws to countersue their persecutor here in Connecticut State Court and recoup uh, damages to reimburse them for any damages they faced in the other proceeding, in addition to attorney fees and costs. And it also contains medical privacy protections to ensure that medical records related to reproductive health care here in the state of Connecticut are not shared uh, without uh, certain process and protections. And in addition to touching on reproductive health care, this law also protects LGBTQ individuals and families against the increasingly punitive laws we're seeing in places like Texas that are seeking to punish families with trans kids for getting trans-affirming care for those kids. So this bill is out at the forefront of what states are doing to protect their residents against these sorts of out-of-state legal attacks. Uh, we're already seeing that people from Texas are coming to Connecticut to get abortion care that is currently subject to civil liability there. We don't anticipate will be the number one location. Obviously, Connecticut is a small state, and luckily, we're kind of surrounded by states that also are protecting abortion rights. And we also are going to be a model for other states that may see a greater uptick in individuals coming to their borders to seek care that's legal there. Was this initiated by the caucus, or were you responding to a lot of pressure requests from Planned Parenthood and other other groups that are concerned about reproductive health care? Yeah, so this really came from the caucus in cooperation with a lot of the advocates. What happened was after uh, the United States versus Texas Supreme Court decision where the Supreme Court refused to block the Texas law and then the Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization oral argument, it became clear to me and I think a number of other people that the Supreme Court was about to overrule Roe versus Wade. So I spoke with one of my colleagues who's been very active on these issues, Representative Jillian Gilchrist of West Hartford, and we decided to start this caucus. We started meeting with advocates and law professors to try to plan this out uh, to address what we saw to be an urgent need. And so we worked in coordination with a number of organizations and came up with these legal protections and this measure to provide uh, more providers to provide the care as the top two priorities for now, but we're going to continue to pursue additional legislation in the future to address other issues. Oh, other issues like what? Oh, there are a number of different areas. We want to make sure that people are protected. We want to make sure that healthcare providers, malpractice insurance, and licenses aren't subject to frivolous complaints or attacks from other states based purely on the fact that they're providing legal abortion care. Uh, we want to make sure that these areas of care are funded sufficiently because we know that the people who are going to be most hurt by these bans in other states are going to be people of low income who don't have the resources to get the care themselves. So we want to make sure it's properly funded. Um, there are a number of other areas we're exploring, uh, but in some sense, we're going to have to be reactive to what other states do to try to ban or burden care here in the state of Connecticut and what they do to attack our residents. So we'll be on guard. We'll be developing our agenda. And we see this as a fight that will continue into the future. That was Connecticut State Representative Matt Blumenthal, co-chair of the Connecticut General Assembly's Reproductive Rights Caucus. Learn more about Connecticut's Reproductive Freedom Defense Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
The coronavirus pandemic, now in its third year, has killed over one million Americans, with the World Health Organization estimating that the global death toll is nearly 15 million. Among all wealthy nations, the U.S. has the highest COVID-19 deaths per capita. There's extensive evidence that President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, and others in the administration's cabinet deliberately sabotaged the federal pandemic response, based in part on gaining perceived political advantage. According to the Lancet Commission on Public Policy and Health, about 40% of the nation's coronavirus deaths could have been prevented if the U.S. average death rate matched other industrialized nations. The Lancet report specifically cited Donald Trump's inept and insufficient response to the pandemic. In his new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, The Nation magazine's national affairs correspondent John Nichols calls out politicians across the political spectrum and corporate executives who profited politically or financially from the preventable deaths of hundreds of thousands. Your reporter spoke with Nichols, who reviews who was at fault and why the nation must hold these men and women accountable for their crimes. It's jaw-dropping to me that Donald Trump was impeached twice, uh, once for his strong-arming of Ukraine, which of course has come back to haunt, and then a second time for his strong-arming of the United States as regards an attempted coup to overturn an election result. Both legitimate impeachments, no question of that. But it's sort of amazing to me that Donald Trump hasn't been or wasn't impeached for his handling of COVID, which was by any measure a incredibly, not just irresponsible and and politically crude approach. It was deadly. According to the Lancet studies, uh, 40% of the deaths in that first year of COVID in the United States were effectively unnecessary. And what Lancet, the British Medical Journal, determined was that was the level of death in the United States that was above the rate of death that the U.S. should have had if it had just handled the pandemic in the way that, on average, other countries did. You look at Trump, he set the tone without a doubt, and obviously he sent the signals within his administration. There's no question in my mind that he is personally responsible for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying unnecessarily, for millions of people getting sick unnecessarily, and for tens of millions of people going through economic and social hardships that continue to haunt us. So there's no end to the accountability that he should face. Let's talk about Vice President Mike Pence. He was actually given the portfolio of managing the pandemic crisis. That's right. And he was supposedly also the adult in the room. Now, that's an absurd concept. There's no suggestion, really, by anybody who knows Pence that he was any more mature or any more functional than Donald Trump. Pence is a a political career as a hack who served some time in Congress, then as a governor, was a disastrous governor. And then, because he was facing the prospect of not getting reelected in Indiana, decided to join Trump's ticket uh, at a low point for Trump and ended up as vice president. Still, because he knew how to wear his suit properly and, you know, kind of keep quiet at the right time, things of that nature, it was assumed that when Pence was put in charge of COVID, that he would handle it responsibly. The reality is, as I write about in the book, Pence has a long history of mishandling healthcare issues and of dramatically uh, undermining public health responses, in part because of his extreme positions rooted in 
being a far-right social conservative uh, and also because of his close relationships with pharmaceutical companies and uh, the healthcare industry. And so the bottom line was that he was not the right person to put in charge to date, I believe there has been zero accountability for any of these policymakers who are responsible, according to these studies from the Lancet and other universities who study this uh, thoroughly, responsible for hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. What about accountability? You talked about the PCORA Commission under Franklin Delano Roosevelt that the Senate investigated the 1929 Wall Street crash. Mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Is that a model that could be followed? It doesn't look likely that it's going to go forward in this Congress. But what could happen potentially that would hold the folks accountable so there's not a repeat of this irresponsible and reckless way that this pandemic was mismanaged? There has been no accountability. It's, it's stunning. To my mind, I outline a number of different forms of accountability that matter. First and foremost, there's criminal accountability. And, and there is simply no question that, that Trump and Others around him were criminally negligent, uh, and they're certainly worthy to have investigations, which a PCORA-style commission, uh, much like what Roosevelt had uh, and, and the, the Congress had at the early stages of the Great Depression to look into the bankers and wrongdoers, something like that would be very, very appropriate. There's also civil liability, and, and Scott, that's really important. There's so many people who were put in dangerous or deadly situations, their lives either risked and in some cases lost. There are families that have every every reason to sue corporations and governmental entities over this, and they should. Finally, though, I'll talk about congressional accountability. And that congressional accountability or the official accountability can take two forms. One is impeachment and, and sanctions, things of that nature, which are quite appropriate. But the other one that I, I've really been emphasizing a lot is taxation. Taxation is a form of accountability. America's billionaires started the pandemic in control of about $3 trillion. As of today, they control about $5 trillion. There was an exponential increase of wealth on the part of the billionaire class at the exact same time that they were telling everybody else they had to engage in shared sacrifice. It is absurd to let them keep that wealth. They should be taxed at the same level that we taxed war profiteers during World War II, which is at around 90%. The same goes for corporations, including the pharmaceutical companies, which have cashed in and, and made huge fortunes, even though many of the strategies for approaching the pandemic came not from their research or anything like that, but from the public sector. If we don't have accountability, we run the risk of having another pandemic where the profiteers and the politicians end up treating us as pawns in the game. And we really can't afford that because we've got a million people dead and the next pandemic could cost a lot more lives. That was The Nation magazine's national affairs correspondent, John Nichols. Author of the book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Learn more about why the U.S. has suffered so much death in the COVID pandemic by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at DTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, Progressive Voices Network nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.